You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. As dusk settled over South Texas, Gabriel Cardona stood in the kitchen of the safe house and offered a last-minute tutorial. You walk up to him and just poom, he told his newest recruit. En la cabezota, but with both hands, in the crown, poom, you'll fuck him up. Otherwise, poom, 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 four in the chest, and then en la cabezota, to make sure. The recruit nodded and then scattered to his preparations. Four days had passed without a successful action. Other than one bungled job in which they nearly killed the wrong guy, they'd been hanging out in the rented house, a charming brick rambler on Orange Blossom Loop, eating fast food, mowing the lawn, shopping for housewares at Walmart, and talking to girls on their wiretap cell phones. They were young and vigorous, fiery in their belief of success. Now they were getting ready to kill again. Dan Slater is the author of Love in the Time of Algorithms. His new book is Wolf Boys, Two American Teenagers, and Mexico's Most Dangerous Drug Cartel. Thank you for joining me, Dan. Thank you for having me, Rick. Dan, at this book, at the core of it, are these a trio of really interesting characters. When And these are real people. Yes. Uh, so talk about when you first heard about who Gabriel Cardona, Bert, Bart Rada, and... Uh, the policeman. Well, I first heard about the Wolf Boys back before I knew them as Wolf Boys uh, in a New York Times article in June 2009. At the time, I was about 30 years old, and I'd just been laid off uh, as a reporter from the Wall Street Journal. And so I was now at home collecting unemployment in my Brooklyn apartment and went down to the stoop that day to collect the New York Times. And in the national section, there was a story about Mexican drug cartels. Usually these articles you see either on the front page or in the world section, but it was in the national section because it concerned American boys. And the headline of this piece was something like Mexican cartel lures American teens as killers. And it was a story about Gabriel Cardona, Bart Retta, uh, whose real name was Rosalio, but they called him Bart for reasons that we can discuss later, and, and some of their friends who were from a town that I knew nothing about, Laredo, Texas, and uh, they had indeed been lured across the Rio Grande into the hands of a Mexican drug cartel and become essentially assassins for the cartel. After a sort of, you know, an apprenticeship in Mexico, the bosses of the cartel began sending them back to Texas to do jobs there as the cartel wars began to spill over the border. So that was how I first learned of them in this New York Times article. And uh, then I started reading everything I could find about Mexican drug cartels, uh, Latin American drug trade, and so forth. And, and several years later, I finally reached out to them. And that's when I started to work on the book. And I, I actually have the first few lines of the New York Times article here, if you want to hear uh, the very first sentences that I saw sure. about them. Sure. Why don't you okay. read those? So this is, how, this is how the New York Times article began. This is like the first maybe four sentences of it. When he was finally caught, Rosalio Retta told detectives here that he had felt a thrill each time he killed. It was like being Superman or James Bond, he said. I like what I do, he told the police in a videotaped confession. 
I don't deny it. Mr. Retto was 13 when he was recruited by the Zetas. He was one of a group of American teenagers from the impoverished streets of Laredo, who was lured into the drug wars across the Rio Grande in Mexico with promises of high pay, fancy cars, and sexy women. After a short apprenticeship in Mexico, the young men lived in an expensive house in Texas, available to kill whenever called on. It's a really mind-boggling story. And I think what's important here for our readers is that you set it up very well by giving us kind of a brief history of the drug wars and how things came to this point where such a thing could be possible. I think that uh, for me, what seemed to be the real, the biggest uh, linchpin turning point was when, as you put it, uh, Mexico kind of uh, privatized the 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 whole drug trade, and that was in like the seventies and eighties. So talk about how um, the company itself came to be, and from the uh, privatization, as it were, of the drug trade. Well, the privatization, I think, is a great way to put it. And essentially, I, I think what you mean by that, and I think what I mean in the book, is that all the law enforcement in Mexico at some point just started working directly for the cartels rather than merely taking a bribe. Uh, this actually started to happen in mass around the mid-90s. And one of the most incredible examples of it was that the elite unit of the Mexican military, which would be the equivalent here to like the Green Berets, went to work for the Gulf Cartel as the enforcement arm of the Gulf Cartel. They decided they were no longer happy with their government pay, and they kind of jumped over to the other side. And these, so these are highly trained soldiers working now for a drug cartel. Uh, that, that started happening in the mid-late 90s. By the early 2000s, they were known as the Zetas, and they had essentially evolved into their own drug cartel working alongside the Gulf cartel. And the unit of the two, the Gulf cartel and the Zetas, became known collectively as La Compania, which means the company. And uh, they operated according to a very strict capitalist ethos that these boys became sort of acculturated to when they joined the cartel in 04, 05, 06. Uh, I really like this idea about the Zetas honing in on them. They started out as the GAFE, is that correct? The GAFE, yeah, which stands for Grupo Aeromovil Fuerzas Especiales. So essentially the Mexico's version of the Green Beret decided they could make more money working for the drug cartels and uh, turned themselves over to them to become the Zetas. Right. Now the Zetas were known by numbers, weren't they? So that you would not know they who they code. were. They had a code. It was Z, Z1, Z7. Uh, Z40 was Miguel Trevino, who who was around 2004 and five, a kind of a mid-level boss in the cartel, in the Zetas. And, and he was the one who recruited these American boys and, and eventually rose to the top of the cartel. Let, let's talk about the other side of the law, too. Uh, Robert Garcia, he's, he's the cop that you meet, that you bring us to. And he has a really interesting background. So tell us a little bit about uh, Robert Garcia and when you met him and, and how he told you his story. Robert was a absolutely fascinating character. He was not the original inspiration for me to do the book. The original inspiration was to learn about the lives of these boys and, and sort of the lifestyle, where they where they came from, what sort of lives they lived before they joined the cartel. 
But when I met Robert, I learned that he, although he'd obviously taken a very different path, he was equally interesting. He, he actually came from, from a lot less than they did. Mm-hmm. He was born in Mexico, unlike these boys who are fully American. He was born in Mexico. He immigrated to Texas with his family when he was nine. They moved across the border to Eagle Pass, Texas, which is not far from Laredo, uh, right right on the border. And, and he literally, with his father, built their family's own house on like a pile of dirt. I mean, this was the immigrant story. They worked as migrant workers on farms and were totally self-made. Uh, Robert passed up a scholarship for college, I believe in design, and he decided to enlist in the U.S. Army. He went abroad for four years working for the Army. Uh, he met his wife in the Army. And when they moved back stateside and retired from the Army in their early 20s, they decided to settle in Laredo, Texas, where he became a street cop. So during his 20s, he was doing the things that a street cop does in Laredo, which is a lot of drug work. You do a lot of drug arrests. And that that work felt meaningful to him. When, when he would arrest someone with heroin or marijuana, he felt like he was serving his society in a great way. And the, the way he thought about it was that he wasn't only taking someone with drugs off the street, but he was removing someone who would commit other crimes in order to get drugs, burglary, and so forth. So because he did his job so well during his 20s, he became he was awarded the Officer of the Year when he was 29. And along with that distinction, he got a uh, not really a promotion, but he was tasked out to the federal DEA, which is what happens a lot in Laredo. You, you have a very large law enforcement complex in Laredo. Every, every local, state, and federal agency has a huge presence there uh, because of all of the crime and all the drug crime and all the border crime. And so a lot of the agencies will sort of shift their employees between them so you can go and get some, some new sort of experience, bring it back to your home agency. So he was sent away to um, DEA for a period that was supposed to be about two to four years. Uh, it wound up being six years. He got a lot of experience, but more importantly, he got this kind of wide-angle national view on the drug war, and he saw for the first time uh, how little drug interdiction was actually accomplishing at the national level. It was very easy to be a street cop, to be a local cop in your little city where your world is very small, and feel like what you were doing was meaningful. But when you join DEA and you see how much actually gets through Laredo up into the rest of, you know, the system... Uh, you see, wow, we're we're actually only catching maybe 1% of the drugs that come through. Meanwhile, a lot of money is being spent. Things are very stagnant. No one's changing policy. And so he became very disillusioned during the period he spent in DEA. When he came back to Laredo PD uh, at the age of about 35, he decided he was going to leave the drug investigations behind. And that's when he became a homicide detective. And it was in that capacity that he pursued the Wolf Boys. And I think that that murder work sort of, at least at that time, became very meaningful to him because he felt like, well, we're never going to stem the drug flow. Uh, That's a pipe dream, but I can at least do something about the violence here in my home city. Tell us a little bit about the city of Laredo and the kind of cultural Petri dish in which uh, Gabriel and Bart uh, 
grew up. And tell us, too, uh, how Bart came by his name. Well, first of all, I'll say that Laredo is a writer's dream. I mean, it's the kind of thing you dream about as a writer because it's a world unto itself. It's almost like uh, I don't I don't write um, fantasy or sci-fi, but I have a lot of friends who do, and they're always, you know, they talk about the world-building part of their work where they have to, you know, it's like the Game of Thrones type of stuff where you're inventing weapons and you're inventing different kinds of animals that don't actually, you know, actually exist in a, a wall that turns into a robot or whatever. Laredo, like, has that sort of sci-fi stuff built in. You don't have to invent it. You just have to go and hang out there. You know, that's and, actually, that's true because as I was reading this, it's so unfamiliar to us and so bizarre. It really, you really do do a lot of uh, fantasy or sci-fi world building. In yeah. This. Um, so there are, there are I mean, we could sit here and talk about Laredo all day. I'd say the main features that are important to understand is that uh, it's a very marginalized city. It's about two hours south of San Antonio. By the time you get there, you're not sure where you are. You're not sure if you're still in the U.S. or not. It's 98% Hispanic, which makes it the least ethnically diverse city in America. It's one of the poorest cities in America, something like 35% living at the poverty level, a lot of single mother families. The education system is very, very bad. A lot of the classes in high schools are taught in Spanish, even the English class. The graduation <laughs> rate is very low. And like I said earlier, there is an enormous industry built on crime. And I don't just mean the money to be made in the black market, although that's vast. It's a billion-dollar underworld economy. And it's not just drugs. It's also weapons and vehicles that go south. It's the currency smuggling market. But it's also the legitimate side of it. It's it's all the jobs that the crime creates, uh, <laughs> which is just amazing. And it's it's, you know, obviously it's law enforcement jobs, but it's also all these other industries that you wouldn't even imagine. Uh, for instance, like the people who own the warehouses that then rent warehouse space to the government. So the government has a place to store all the contraband it sees at the border. On and on and on, the people who work for the courts, the lawyers, the judges, the bailiffs. The bail bond industry is an enormous industry in Laredo and very, very corrupt. Those are the important things to note. One of the, one of the most interesting things I did reporting there is I went and talked to the principal of Gabriel Cardona's high school. How interesting, yeah, because you have this, the coach handed him, benched him in favor of a sophomore. Yeah, so so he, um, Gabriel, and we can talk more about him later and, and, and how he wound up in the hands of a cartel and working, working as an assassin, but it started at his high school when he walked off the football team as, as a freshman because he thought he should be the starting quarterback and the coach benched him in favor of a sophomore and and then he gets involved in a street gang and that leads from one thing to another but when I went and spoke to the principal of his high school the principal was very upfront with me and he said look I essentially oversee two different populations here it's the population of people who are going to go into the drug business and the population of students who are going to wind up chasing them um, wow, how and, interesting. And, and, and that's that's the principle of your high school. So that'll be one of the more optimistic. <laughs> theoretically, that's going to be one of the more one of the more optimistic people in your community. But that that was the reality that he described. So so that's, you know, the principal's view there on the city. 
uh, NAFTA plays a not small part in this. Mm. Yeah, when NAFTA was enacted in 94, it completely transformed the city. Uh, Over the next five to ten years, the city doubled in size. It went from about 125,000 people to a quarter million people. The amount of commerce that was now moving through made Laredo the biggest overland port in the Western Hemisphere. So today, for instance, you have about 60,000 trucks moving north per week, and it became obviously impossible to, to search all those vehicles. So smuggling became a lot easier. And, and, and that was a period that really emboldened the drug organizations. And not coincidentally, it was the period in which a lot of the cartels went from kind of mom-and-pop organizations into these almost paramilitary organizations that the Zetas really um, were at the center of. You create such an interesting landscape. It's almost like something out of a Philip K. Dick novel. You talk about a bustling chain of beer drive throughs mammy chulas staffed by bikini-clad teens who accepted tips like strippers. I mean, this is not uh, the America we and are that's used owned to. By, that's owned by one of the most prominent prison gangs in America called the Mexican Mafia. <laughs> and this is known. <laughs> This is widely known. Uh, the tallest building in Laredo is the DEA building. Wow. Now, um, talk about, uh, let, let's dial back to, to Gabriel. And he has just um, been kind of benched. He had his first hit of pot and hanging out with the drug trade. Uh, a few days later, the World Trade Towers came down and uh, the world changed significantly, especially for Gabriel. The instant where he walked off the football team, right, that was right around 9-11. And he started hanging out with some boys in the ghetto where he grew up who were involved in a street gang. And that was when he got into underworld pursuits. It actually began for him uh, when he and some friends started buying weapons out of the trunk of a Laredo cop. (laughs) <laughs> who was selling them weapons directly out of like a law enforcement catalog. They would tell him what they wanted and he would order it. And then they would take those weapons south across the border and sell them in Mexico. That became his first sort of sideline in uh, the criminal world and, and that led to stealing vehicles. Uh, he was very good at stealing vehicles because a girlfriend of his introduced him to a tranquilizer that we know up here as Rufi's, the date rape drug. But in Laredo, Texas, uh, Rufi's are more of like a party pill. They've not been available in the U.S. for a long, long time. I don't know if they ever were. They might have been. Back in the 70s, I think we called them like Spanish fly or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can still get them at any pharmacy in Mexico. And so Gabriel grew up, uh, I mean, literally a stone's throw from Mexico, a stone's throw from the International Bridge, and a stone's throw to the beginning of I-35 that runs up north all the way to Duluth, Minnesota, and connects with every highway, almost every highway system in the country. Uh, but he could just walk right over that bridge into Mexico like it was nothing, and he did that every Sunday with his family when they'd go to see extended uh, relatives on the other side. But he developed a taste for these roofies, which in Laredo they call roaches. And the reason they call them roaches is because they're made by a Swiss pharmaceutical company named Hoffman LaRoche. And uh, these roaches are freely available in Mexico. They're very cheap. And they would render him insensate, essentially. 
so he could walk into the parking lot of a gas station, uh, find someone who'd left their car on while they went in to pay or left the keys in or something like that, and just hop in and drive it away. And he was very good at this, and he did it uh, very often and rarely got caught. And so he made good money doing that, and it was actually that pursuit that, that led him into the hands of the Zetas, and, and that was a... Um, that was a transformative night in the spring of his 17th year where he and a friend had stolen a truck and they brought it across to sell to a cop in Laredo. And um, when they got to the police barracks, they found out the cop was no longer with us and they uh, were, uh, were apprehended by a bunch of men driving black SUVs. And that was the first night he met Miguel Trevino, and uh, Miguel would become this this kind of weird father figure to Gabriel. But uh, that evening, things were very precarious, and actually Miguel almost killed Gabriel before he ended up hiring him. You set up the, the company and also Texas, I think, so well. Uh, you take us back to uh, 1831 and Jacob Astor and um, the, you know, people who were originally began importing drugs to um, the times when Texas, everybody in Texas had a gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Well, Jacob Astor, he was, of course, the owner of the of the American Fur Company in uh, the early 19th century and, and, and one of the richest, if not the richest man in America for a long time. And, and, and part and parcel of the fur trade was the whiskey trade because when you sent a boatman up the river to go buy pelts from Native Americans, it was very uh, convenient instead of paying cash to just load the boat up with whiskey and use that as your means of trade. Representatives of various Native American communities started to complain to the American government as, as far back as the Thomas Jefferson era saying, hey, you need to stop flooding our communities with alcohol because you're ruining our communities. And there were actually eras of alcohol prohibition way before the prohibition era that we commonly think of as prohibition in the 1930s but uh, as far back i think as as the as maybe like the 18 teens the 1820s the government experimented with prohibition only in native american territories of course that didn't work because the demand remained and the demand was huge and what we discovered then maybe for the first time was that you can try to regulate something with laws but where there is a demand, the supply inevitably will flow, and the only thing you accomplish by passing a law that attempts to prohibit it is jacking the price up. So now it wasn't that Native Americans were no longer get to get whiskey from the boatmen who worked for the Astors. It was just that they had to give up a lot more pelts in order to get the whiskey. <laughs> and so far from making their communities better, prohibition made their communities much worse. And that was a lesson that we would carry forward two centuries to today. Talk uh, about the privatization uh, of the uh, of drug smuggling from uh, the Mexican government. What fascinates me is in the center of this book, you give a whole big um, series of kind of like bullet points about how what the company is and how it functions and the way it functions. I mean, they have basically adapted best management practices for smuggling drugs and killing people. I mean, this is... Uh, it's it's industrial, and I think that's why the story is as chilling as it is to some readers, or mm-hmm. to all readers. 
is it's very scary to see this brought up to the industrialized level where you have these ranks of accountants who are in charge of handling money and the books for each product. And for each city, each plaza, and each region, and each state in Mexico has these different levels of accountants. And, and of course, the killing is very efficient. They raid stash houses. They kill the enemies they find there. And for me, in uh, researching and writing the book, it was definitely one of the most hair-raising aspects was just seeing how this violence wasn't, wasn't so much wanton as it was just professional and industrial. Yeah, it, you talk about this like they had had employee perks, they had payoffs, they had yeah, revenue, they had vacations, spies. They get, uh, yep, <laughs> it's, I mean the whole thing is like it's Walmart for for moving drugs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, uh, in order to make this work, they had to have a really committed force, and I think one of the lessons of this book <clears throat> that I saw was that. The importance of having a purpose in your life. Absolutely. Because Robert, your cop, and Gabriel and Bart all found purpose in what they were doing. Gabriel found great purpose in being uh, uh, working for the company, as did Robert trying to get rid of the company. Yeah, when I, when I read the opening lines from the New York Times article in '09, which was the first article that I saw about these Boys, the article cites the high pay, the fancy cars, the sexy women, and that was the that was the allure, and certainly it was. But I think one part of it that goes underappreciated in the media is the power of a boy who comes from nothing all of a sudden being accepted by an organization that every other kid in town wants to be a part of and feeling now, as you say, a sense of purpose a sense of belonging, and even a sense of a viable career path, as, as strange and bizarre as that sounds. But remember, I mean, these are teenage boys, so they have no concept of consequence. They think uh, the future is endless, and this is going to last forever. Uh, I think for me, uh, one of the most chilling aspects of this book was the, the story of the training camps. Uh, one, once uh, Gabriel and, and Bart were allowed you know brought into the 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 la compañía they were sent to a training camp and in these training camps it's the way you write about it it's very casual but they a part of their job is to kill the contras and they there are a lot of bodies that show that end up in this book pages of this book as a result of just training these boys on how to kill so yeah, Wolf Boys is, is, I think, 33 chapters long, and one of the chapters is set in the training camp where we see Gabriel become what he becomes, and we see the training process. It was by far the hardest, or at least one of the hardest parts of the book to report and research and learn about, and, and one of the hardest parts of the book to write. If it comes across as casual... Um, I, I don't think I meant to make it casual. I think I meant to take myself out of it as much as possible oh, no, and, and have that chapter, yeah, have that chapter be as close to purely descriptive as you can get without without having no emotion. All, you know, the book was rewritten endlessly. All of the book was rewritten endlessly, but that particularly was a chapter that 
had to be perfect it, it's because powerful. it's amazing uh, uh, he's a writing <laughs> and and it is it is absolutely horrific again it's just it's something that uh, you know uh, a sci-fi author probably couldn't invent i mean and and this and this is all real it's as you say they would they would bring live captives from the rival cartel who'd been detained into the camp essentially as human target practice and the point of all this from from the men running this organization the bosses who are recruiting these boys is is to weed out uh, the ones who who um don't have it in their blood and their genes to take a human life and to figure out who does have that and and the ones who prove themselves able are are set aside and they're referred to as the frios the cold ones they become the sicarios the assassins and and that is a uh it's a minority uh, of them, and 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 they're sort of like the Aztec warrior kids from four or five centuries ago. They're they're the ones that are honored. They get the prime position in the warrior house. They get the best pay, and so forth. Talk about once these boys have been trained there, they end up back in in Texas, and I think that 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 aspect too is is really amazing that. We could um, that in a normal suburb with normal houses, there are teenagers living who are living kind of like rock star assassins. It's it's frightening. Yeah, I mean, again, it goes to that sense of purpose and 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 that sense of belonging. And mm-hmm. and for a boy who grew up in in essentially a shack with no resources, having Brothers, uncles, fathers, probably in and out of prison if they're around at all. All of a sudden, someone's renting a house for you up in the north side of town, the north side of Laredo, the fancy part of town in the sort of the uppity suburb. I mean, for for a kid like that, it's like being moved to a castle. You have your own bedroom. Mm -hmm. You have a closet full of Hugo Boss and Versace and Ralph Lauren. You have a Mercedes that's off at the mechanic getting detailed with specialized whatever. I mean, there's nothing more exciting. And sadly, in Laredo, a lot of the young women are raised to look for these things and guys and choose on that basis. So there's this unfortunate kind of reinforcing mechanism they get from females. The guy driving the Mercedes is going to have the most women, things, things like that. Not, that. not that the rest of the world isn't any different. <laughs> but you see, I think, you know, we don't, we don't always understand the cost of materialism. We don't always understand the downside of that. Uh, for instance, in a place like San Francisco or I live in New England, we don't see, we just see a bunch of Audis and BMWs and it's okay and all your friends work at a hedge fund and da-da-da-da-da. But one of the scariest things about working on Wolf Boys for me was to just see what prizing materialism in this society so much means for someone who comes from so little. This is a book is a is a fascinating exploration of the darkest, darkest edges of capitalism because everything is run essentially on the up and up. I mean, even though the entire enterprise is submerged, it's an underground economy. I mean, 
the way the people deal with one another is as honorable or perhaps in some ways even more so than what we find in the financial world. It's just the consequences are mortal and the choices are uh, boxed in and designed by evil, essentially. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the financial world because while I was working on this book, I often asked myself and wondered, like, what would happen to Gabriel Cardona if he came from where I came from? You know, I'm from Minnesota. I'm the product of private education and and have had a lot of opportunity in my life. And I was raised with people who had even more opportunity than I did. And so, you know, a lot of my friends went to law school or went to Wall Street and things like that. And I know Gabriel as well as anyone knows him because we spent several years exchanging hundreds of pages of letters. And he is one intelligent person extremely intelligent, especially when you think about him basically just having a ninth grade education. And I wonder, like, if he'd grown up in my world, uh, what would he have become? Hedge funds. Maybe, (laughs) maybe. And he'd be committing white collar crime, maybe, (laughs) or or he'd, you know, be living in a penthouse in Manhattan. Uh, Once you, as you were reporting this book, on one hand, you're investigating these people from afar, but talk about you know your decision to meet with these uh, to meet with Gabriel because you write about this in, at the end of the book. I think it's really fascinating to uh, talk about you know the kind of interpersonal um, communications you had with Gabriel and relationship you had. The the I, was it a friendship? How would you describe that? I think letter writing is such an intimate form of communication. It's it's hard. It would be hard to exchange that many letters over that long a period without becoming friends on some level. So certainly, I think we became friends or friendly. It's hard to characterize. We certainly came to know each other very, very well, and we came to trust each other mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, I, I really admire him for opening up to me about his life, having no idea what I was going to do with it. He had no say over the book. I only showed him the final copy. He didn't see a draft or anything like that. So, you know, over over the course of our communication, over the course of all those letters, it was sort of like any long-distance relationship or even any kind of, not that we had a romantic relationship, but it felt like that sometimes, you know, the, the sort of up and down and mm-hmm. little spats that you get into when things are misunderstood and it's in letters, so there's no opportunity to respond on the spot. It's two to four weeks before you get, before you clear up the misunderstanding, and you know tempers can simmer in the interim, <laughs> uh, and that sort of thing happened a lot, especially when inevitably I would ask him about the details of the crimes, the details of the crimes that were on the public record, the ones that were part of indictments, or the crimes that he talked about during his multiple interrogations with Robert Garcia when he would get arrested in Texas for homicide, interrogation interrogated by Robert Garcia, go to jail for a week or a couple of months, and then Miguel Trevino would send an American lawyer with a bag of cash to bail him out, and he'd go right back to work. So there was a lot of crimes that I knew about, that I'd heard about, that had been described in testimony in courts, and so inevitably, writing about his life, I've got to ask him questions about this stuff, and, and that was the kind of information that I discovered eventually, I figured this out, that tended to... Um, put us sort of in a bad way with each other because that was not that was not material that he was very excited to talk about. Well, so it was going against the company code he lived by and had to internalize those rules. He was breaking the rule that he internalized with uh, 
consequences that could be, you know, uh, life-threatening. Yeah. I think it was definitely partly that, that he felt he was breaking a code. I think that he was honestly afraid of being reindicted. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that was if that's a possibility or not. I don't think it. I don't think it was. Over the course of one of one of the other things that complicated our relationship quite a bit, is that while I'm talking to him and the other Wolf Boys who are also in prison, or some of them who are now out in Laredo, and people from their world, I'm also talking to all the people on the law enforcement side, not just Robert Garcia, who's the lead law enforcement character. But I'm talking to people like Angel Moreno, who's the, who's the U.S. attorney, the longtime U.S. attorney down there, who prosecuted these cases. And, of course, Gabriel has very storied relationships with all these people and, and obviously complicated relationships and obviously a lot of bad blood. And so I'm talking to them, I'm talking to him, and I'm going back and forth, and he knows I'm doing this, but he doesn't know what they're telling me. He'd often get angry when he felt I was siding with them or when I he felt I was sort of accepting their narrative too much. So that was that was another source of the conflict between us. But overall, we overcame that stuff, or at least enough for me to write the book. I, I think one of the things that you do really well in this book is to take a lot of different people's very different stories and perceptions of a very complicated uh, situation and give us a story arc that we can grab onto that helps us to understand some of the basic, you know, deductions beyond the book itself. One of the things you say is that as long as there's a demand, there will always be a supply and mm-hmm. prohibition just doesn't work. And But you give us that story that illustrates that with yeah. characters that we care about. And that must have been complicated to weave all those stories together into one. It was very complicated. I had to work very hard at it, but it was also the great reward of the book. I mean, it's very rare that a writer gets a chance to do a nonfiction something like this that's so novelistic. And I think the way that was achieved is through that multiple perspective. I mean, I'm talking to Gabriel, but I'm also talking to his mother and his brothers and his girlfriend and the guys he worked with. I'm talking to his rivals. And and with the other people I'm and I'm 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 also doing the same thing with other people I'm talking to so I'm getting this kind of 360 degree view on all of these characters and able to weave this information together and so I think that was one of the main benefits of this style of reporting where you do focus on what at first appears to be a very small story uh there was a long time when I was working on this book when I wasn't sure if it was a book or not. Because at first I thought, ah, it's a very small story. These are just boys from a town that really no one's ever heard of. But as I started getting those multiple perspectives and hooking it into the contexts, the context of the war on drugs, now that evolved, the context of the history of prohibition generally, uh, the context of violence, and why has the cartel world become so violent today in a way that it wasn't in the 80s? That I got this, this, this sort of almost epic story. So what began as this very small private personal story bloomed out into an epic. One of the men you talk about, and you mentioned this name earlier, uh, Z40. Yeah. Miguel Trevino. Uh, this man is 
really very frightening. So did you meet him? No. No. I I asked mm-hmm. uh, some people if it would ever be possible for me to sit down with him. By the way, he is now he is now in custody. Mm-hmm. He's in custody in Mexico, and there are three federal districts in the U.S. that have indictments against him. So they're all vying to get him when, when and if he is extradited. And I've asked certain people I know in government if it would be possible when he is extradited, if he is, for me to sit down with him. I don't know if that'll ever happen. I don't know if he would agree to it. I don't know if his lawyer would let him do it. But I would be very interested in speaking to him. He is the source of many nightmares. And he's a... He must be one of the, if not the most brutal warlord in modern history. I can't imagine anyone ascending or descending, however you think of it, be beyond what what he did. When when he first met the Wolf Boys in two thousand five, when he was really at the beginning of his ascent in the cartel ladder, uh, he said that he had killed personally over eight hundred people. I think that one of the things that um, makes this book uh, so powerful is the way that we get kind of the down and dirty lives of the boys and, you know, the the commodity things, going to stores, them in high school, in combination with seeing the great work of capitalism repurposed to crime to an extent that's never, uh, I think, been realized before. Uh, and repurposing them. Mm-hmm. from students into boy assassins. It's pretty remarkable <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, one, I, I think that Miguel Trevino, what, one of the things I thought about him was that he seems like, again, on this side of the law, he might have been a, an, a, quite an effective manager. I, I mean, he had, he exhibits all the traits of a good manager, but I guess inverted to include murder, torture, and every other pretty much evil thing you can think of. Yeah, I mean, if Miguel worked at, you know, Goldman Sachs, he'd be that (laughs) manager who was sending you BlackBerry messages at 3 o'clock and would get angry if you didn't respond within five minutes. Um, He was tireless. He loved his work, and all he wanted to do was work. And that work involved moving a lot of drugs and killing a lot of people. One of the things you... you, uh describe in this book is that the people who are the worst, who do the worst crimes, are the ones who have served the least uh, sentences. Talk about that kind of inversion inversion of punishment and crime. Well, uh, one of the unfortunate ways that the U.S. legal system works is that when, when the cartel bosses get extradited, to the states, and this happens all the time. It happened as recently as last September. There was a raft of bosses who was sent up, and they're being processed as we speak. One of the unfortunate things that happens with them is this negotiate, this sort of deal cutting with U.S. attorneys, where theoretically they're exchanging information that only a high-level person would know about smuggling routes or information on where to find their rivals or other cartel bosses, uh, they exchange that for uh, real sweetheart deals. 
So a great example is OCL Cardenas. Oh, that guy. Yeah. He was the boss of the Gulf Cartel. He was the person who founded the Zetas because he became so paranoid that he essentially said, I need my own private army and I won't settle for anything less than the elite Mexican military. So that's how he started hiring that. That's that. That's the way the Zetas began. It was it was it's 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 sort of sprung from OCL's mind. OCL was later arrested in 2003 in Mexico and extradited to the U.S. in 2007. And there was a trial here. It was a closed-door trial. Everything was sealed. And very little is known about that trial, if anything. But what we do know is that even though it's been reported that OCL got 25 years, which in itself would not be much of a sentence, if you go on the federal inmate locator and look up his name, he's scheduled to get out in 2025 after having been extradited in 2007. So it was no 25-year sentence. It was even less. Now, compare that to Gabriel Cardona. Compare that to Bart Retta, these children. Gabriel is essentially serving two life sentences. I'm not, I'm, not make, I'm not an apologist for them. I don't want to mince words. These are serial murderers. I'm not saying they don't deserve to be in prison for the rest of their life. I'm not their advocate. I'm not their lawyer. All I'm saying is that it is absolutely absurd for them to be spending a life in prison and OCL Cardenas is going to be out in his 50s or something. This is, I think, one of the more remarkable aspects of this book is how many things, how much inversion we see in this book of normal society. I mean, the the drug war, which you do a great job of describing and documenting. Thank you very much, Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it all started in 73, right? Yeah, yeah, with uh Well, it actually started before that, but he was the one who created the Drug Enforcement Administration, which also existed in different iterations before that, but he was he really kind of he was the publicist. He he really launched launched the drug war. And two, I think he launched a phrase that has had many unfortunate characters, the war on. Once you have this phrase, the war on, that war on uh, gets applied quite liberally, I think, and never to uh, the benefit of whatever you're trying to uh, create the war on or not, doesn't stop the whatever you're, you have the war on. It just draws attention to the need for more materials for the war. Mm-hmm. The war on drugs is a very, uh, it's a very lucrative war, not mm. for the cartels. I mean, obviously for the cartels it is, but it's a very lucrative war for us here in this country. It's, it's, a, it's essentially a self-financing war. And when you have a self-financing war, you're not going to have many politicians in Washington asking to get rid of it because it creates jobs. It's essentially free jobs. The asset seizures and asset forfeitures mm-hmm. finance so much of the drug work in this country. So it's tough to give up. And I think, yeah, to phrase it as a war means it's a war. It's it's become so violent and it's fed by and off of so much poverty. You wonder if drug policy changes alone could have any impact. I mean, we love to talk about things like legalization, things like sentencing reform. 
And those are important. I'd like to see the effects of some kinds of legalization. I'd love to see sentencing reform. That is long, long overdue. But I don't know if we can deal with drug policy in a silo and pretend like it's not connected to other more bedrock foundational issues like poverty, jobs, and and more foundational policies that could help hold families together. Because at the bottom of all this, in a place like Laredo, is broken families. Mm-hmm. All the boys. I I, I didn't by. I didn't expect Wolf Boys to take parenting as a as a theme when I started working on the book. I that was just one of those things I never thought of. And mm-hmm. now in retrospect, it seems sort of obvious. But through Robert Garcia's story, the homicide detective story. You see the struggles of of even a pretty cohesive family and all the things he had to go through, even though he and his wife were very strong, you know, personalities, had very strong values, both came from very good family backgrounds. When they got to Laredo and started their their own family with their two sons, they had to work very hard to keep those boys on the straight and narrow. I think, too, that um, this book will stimulate all sorts of uh, conversation. Well, for one thing, uh, you write that the boys, um, they made the most money smuggling um, cocaine, but they were asked to when they were in their smuggling days, asked they, they were required to smuggle green along with the white, which is to say marijuana. Um, now that marijuana is becoming increasingly legal in the United States, I'm wondering what you think the knock-on effect of that will be, if anything, or if it will just still be we'll still be getting our marijuana from Mexico and from criminals to Mexico it'll just be legal to buy it here the marijuana that I've seen in Laredo and I've seen a lot of it I mean I've sat on bales of marijuana I've been with people in the ghettos where they make like a lazy boy out of um, bales of marijuana it's it's plentiful you wouldn't believe how cheap it is but it's also it doesn't really compete with what we are seeing in the states, particularly in states where it's legal now, and you're getting this amazing organic, fresh marijuana that's you know being overseen by professionals with PhDs and things like this, <laughs> this uh, the marijuana that's coming in from Mexico, it can't compete with that. Not to say there's not still a market for it in places where people can't afford. Uh, the stuff that's being sold in in pharmacies and stores in Colorado and California, there there is there is still a market. I think over the long term, Mexican pot probably won't be able to compete unless once we have full federal legalization, like pharmaceutical companies start to move in on the pot industry and decide to just go to Mexico and and buy up real estate in the Sierra Nevada mountains and start to just grow it outdoors there with their with their scientists. <laughs> which could happen. <laughs> I, I guess now uh, among the many things that will stop this, uh, do you think that a wall between the United States and Mexico, kind of a, a 21st century version of the Berlin Wall, worked so well for Russia, is going to work for the United States? The short answer is uh, no. It, it's It wouldn't Work. Let's assume that a wall could be built. Let's assume this theoretical wall is possible, and and you can put a wall along a two thousand mile border. If if you talk to federal agents, if you talk to local cops, anyone who works and lives on the border and is familiar with the border, 
they will tell you that any time you try to step up the interdiction efforts at the border, whether that means doubling the size of law enforcement personnel or whether that means building some wall, you don't achieve less smuggling. You often actually achieve the opposite because what you do is you make smuggling more risky. And when you make smuggling more risky, you drive up the prices of those products and therefore the profits. And to a person in a ghetto in Laredo or Nuevo Laredo across the border or someone who's being raised in in utter poverty in South Mexico, when the prices go up, they don't care about the the they don't they don't care about the enhanced chance of landing in prison or getting caught. They want to make that extra money. And so what you end up doing when you step up interdiction efforts is you pull more people into the black market who are willing to take the risk for the money, not less. So would a wall work? No, a wall would not only not work, but it would probably lead to more smuggling than we see now. Uh, in a sense, do you think that this book is about the ultimate triumph of capitalism? It's it's the ultimate perversion of the capitalistic ideal. It's the version that it, you know we we see in when when we sort of take it to its worst extreme i don't want to i don't want to get on the political soapbox too much but after these financial crises that we go through and we see how people who are running the show in wall street uh really don't care it's a bottom line it's make as much money as you can try not to get caught and get out and rationalize everything. And then you go down to Laredo and you see essentially the same psychology in place put to a different use, different end. You can't help but wonder if we are headed for something very bad very soon. I've been speaking with Dan Slater. His new book is Wolf Boys, Two American Teenagers and Mexico's Most Dangerous Drug Cartel. Thank you for joining me, Dan. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. I enjoyed it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.